So, today I'm going to talk about the path is not the goal. The path is not the goal. So I was thinking, you know, it's the beginning of the year, we need to remind ourselves what the path is, how we can look at it, how we can use it to our advantage. So if the path is not the goal, what is the path? And I think the path is the raft that takes us to the other shore. So we need to understand what the characteristics of the path are in order for it to be a raft in order to get us to the other shore. So the Eightfold Path is found in the Four Noble Truths. First truth is life is ultimately unsatisfactory. It rains too much, makes us wet and uncomfortable. And there's really nothing we can do about it because the cause of all that suffering is we have desire, craving, want it to be different than it is. We have attachment and aversion. The third truth is it can all come to an end. And that would be the end of suffering. And that would be called nirvana. And the fourth truth is the Noble Eightfold Path our raft to nirvana. So the Eightfold Path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So I'm going to talk briefly about each of the path factors, and then at the end we'll see how they all work together to bring us to our liberation and freedom from suffering. So the first path factor is right view. Now, a lot of uh, people will explain it in many different ways. This is how I explain it. Right view is right view of the Four Noble Truths and of karma. So the Four Noble Truths can be understood at a relative level or an ultimate level, can be understood at a word level and a nonverbal level. It can be understood in two different ways, one through the intellect and one through the intuition. Karma is probably one of the most important aspects of the Buddhist path because it doesn't have a time limit. Now, we're in the season, a political season, of people wanting to run for various offices, including the President of the United States. And lo and behold, as we start to understand the past histories of a lot of these candidates, we find that they were, at certain times in their life, unskillful. And it might have been in the 1970s or the 1980s or the 1990s, and all of a sudden pictures come out, and uh, apparently words they used in an unskillful way became available to us. 20, 30, 40 years later, and we go, oh my, oh my, how could they have possibly done that? Well, in, in our short and interesting life, we evolve in different ways, and hopefully we evolve with wisdom as being a primary characteristic rather than stupidity. But when you're 20 or 30, things that really make a lot of sense may not make a lot of sense at 40 or 50. And we could perhaps forgive them because the person that said them 
doesn't live anymore. That person died long ago, 1984. But now we have a new person who has taken his place, and we say, how could that be? What do we see in that new person that connects them to the old person? And as a matter of fact, it is karma. The actions, the speech, and the intentions of the past person continues into the present life of the new person. There's a causal connection. It doesn't end when the 1984 person dies. It continues. We, we think about it oftentimes in past life and future life as the thing that migrates is karma. But even in this life, the thing that migrates is karma. And, and so we need to be skillful the older we get um, in what we say, what we do, what we think. And at some point, if you're really skillful and really wise, you won't say anything at all. It is an issue that we need to be aware of in every day we live, that what we say, think, and do follows us until the very end. And not only to the very end, but to the very beginning of the next lifetime. It just continues time and time again. What will end our karma is this, nirvana. Nirvana ends our karma. At that point, we don't have to worry about what happened in 1984. But most of us will probably not reach nirvana in this lifetime, so we need to be aware of karma. Right intention, second path factor. Right intention is having the intention of generosity, the intention of kindness, that what we think, say, and do relieves the suffering of others, not increases the suffering of others. And this intention then will lead our speech and action into the world, and we will be skillful in everything we say and do because we have the right intention, which is what we think. Next is right speech. It is so difficult. If you listen to people talking, you find that it's rare to have somebody with right speech all the time. Now, I find with myself, after speaking as much as I do, is I can have right speech for maybe 30 minutes, which is pretty much a, uh, I'm proud of that. <laughs> but after 30 minutes, you never know what's going to happen. So what is wrong speech? What would be characteristic of wrong speech? It would be false speech, malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip, and idle chatter. Those are the kind of that's the kind of wrong speech that increases suffering, not decreases suffering. Then we come to right action. Right action is, number one, not to take life. Wow. Okay. I talk about this ad nauseum because it's just like, man, we're always just killing stuff all the time. I posted something on Facebook yesterday about a guy buying a fish at the supermarket. And he asked the clerk, can I have a plastic bag for the fish? And the clerk says, it's in the fish. <laughs> we shouldn't say much about our environmental politics. You know. But we have this right action where if we can prevent ourselves from killing and, and stealing and involving ourselves in, in sexual misconduct... 
we will be reducing suffering in the world, not increasing suffering in the world. And, and so this, this path of ours is one of the most difficult paths you're ever going to, to accept. But the idea is it's practice. We are just simply practicing the path. And at the end of the path, our practice turns into performance. But it takes oftentimes lifetimes of practice for it to turn into performance. So we have right view, right intention, right speech, right action, and then we come to right livelihood. Can we find a way to make a living without increasing suffering? Can we find a way to make a living that will allow us to live in a comfortable way and meet our needs, perhaps not our wants, but meet our needs. And then, what would that be? I thought to myself, well, you could become a lawyer. Well, maybe not. (laughs) It would depend on what kind of lawyer you're going to be. Then I said to myself, well, maybe you could become a politician. And then I said, well, maybe not. (laughs) And then I said to myself, well, how about a garbage man? And I said, yes. A garbage man. He drives the big truck at 6 in the morning. Always seems to back up more than he goes forward. So you hear the (laughs) dee, 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 dee. But when he leaves, he takes the trash and smell with him. He's performing a wonderful service for our community. And he's getting paid for it. And we appreciate that. But I don't know anybody who's going to grow up and want to be a garbage man. You know, they'd want to be a politician or a lawyer, or maybe they could be a celebrity. And, and we know how much they contribute to the community. <laughs> so it is an interesting decision we all make at some point in our life. What do I want to be? What do I want to do? And some of us have clear idea and know the path to get there. And some of us just haven't got a clue. And we let life take its course. And if we watch carefully and listen carefully, we will see an opportunity open for us. But you have to look really carefully. So 25 years ago, I saw an opportunity for ordination. I went, wow, ordination. How would that change my life? And I'd been coming here since 1979. So all those years, ordination didn't seem like an option. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, Buddhism was what I really like. I have a passion for it. It never seems like work. It's always interesting. And I always learn something. And it always allows me to be a better person if I want to be. I thought, how would that be to work instead of at a job, at a lifestyle. What's it like just to have a lifestyle, you know? So ordination became available. A few of us decided to make the move. We saw the window of opportunity opening, but only for a short period of time. You see, none of this stuff is forever. And if you were to come here today and say, I want to be ordained, Reverend Shanti would say, well, no, I'm sorry, we don't do that anymore. Because it takes 10 years to get ordained. And we don't know where we're going to be in 10 years. Above the ground? Below the ground? We're not sure. But back in the 90s, there was that opportunity. 
So I thought to myself, wow, I'm glad I didn't have too many preconceived ideas of what I was going to do in life because I might have missed that opportunity. But because I was looking and listening and practicing the Dharma, I saw the opportunity. So right livelihood can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. Next we come to right effort. And right effort is all psychological. It's nothing to do with physical. And it is, number one, to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising. Number two, to abandon unskillful thoughts that have already arisen. Number three, to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. Number four, to maintain skillful thoughts that are already there. So we have unskillful and we have skillful and we get rid of the unskillful, and we maintain the skillful, and then the next question is, well, what is a skillful thought, and what is an unskillful thought? And a skillful thought is one that's based in generosity, compassion, and wisdom. An unskillful thought is one that's rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. So we need to have a certain level of inner awareness to see what thought is directing our speech and action now. And we can, if it is unskillful and it's starting to manifest in speech, we can prevent the speech from happening and simply have silence. So sometimes if you're really angry at somebody, it's probably best to speak to them tomorrow. Give yourself a chance to reflect and breathe in and breathe out, and realize that your anger probably has something to do with what you're clinging to at that moment. It's more about you than it is about them. They simply have been the catalyst in becoming aware of this clinging. So, it is important to understand that we are not in charge of our mind, our thoughts, in the beginning. Our mind has thoughts, and that's its job. But we can be in charge of how they manifest in the world if we are disciplined and have awareness of those thoughts. Greed, hatred, delusion, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. Now we come to the two aspects of Buddhist meditation. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So right mindfulness would be vipassana, and there are four kinds of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. And we can choose one or all of them and simply be aware of them. And for instance, if you were doing mindfulness of sensations, we have three kinds of sensations as a human being. We have pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and neutral sensations. So we can get rid of neutral sensations because generally they don't catch our attention. We are only aware of pleasant and unpleasant. Now, there are three aspects that we try to apply to these sensations to get insight and wisdom. The first 
is, is it causing me to suffer this sensation? And you would say to yourself, well, you know, the unpleasant one, absolutely. But the pleasant one, I don't see suffering. I just feel pleasure and happiness. And then you would factor in the second aspect, which would be impermanence. And you'd say, well, you know, what happens if I look at all sensations as being impermanent, as well as pleasant and unpleasant, then I see that even the pleasant ones become unsatisfactory because they change. And then thirdly, we would say, but is there really a sensation that exists apart from conditions? Is there something that stands independent apart from us, like a sore knee? Is it our knee or is it simply the knee is sore apart from us? Well, the problem is it is apart from us, and that's why we can look at it as being sore or not sore. And if we are skillful, we can do one of two things to counter that idea of selflessness. We can merge totally into sensation and simply become the sensation, and then we're no longer apart from it, and then it no longer causes us a problem. Or we can go deeper and deeper and deeper into our object of meditation, which might be the sensation of breath, and have that be the only thing that we are aware of, and that would anesthetize the pain in the knee, because we no longer have a knee, we'd only have sensation of breath. So these are fun things to think about and do while you're suffering in meditation. Then we come to right concentration. And right concentration has to do with samatha, tranquility meditation. And, and, and what we find is we have four levels of tranquility, and we have five characteristics in the first level, which is called jhana, J-H-A-N-A. So the first jhana has five characteristics, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. We get rid of applied thought and sustained thought when we have a stronger sense of concentration and no longer need to hold it on the object of meditation. Now it simply rests on the object of meditation. Then we have happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Bliss being the physical aspect, happiness being the mental aspect, and now we're going to get rid of those, and we can't get rid of those because we had nothing to do with creating them. But we can do something about our attachment to bliss and our attachment to happiness. And if we figure out that that is where the solution lies, then we come to finally the last part of the five aspects of the first jhana. And what we find is equanimity, perfect balance of mind. So we no longer have good or bad patriots or rams, democrats or republicans. We just have what's in the middle, which is a perfect balance of both. And when you have a perfect balance of both, nothing exists on either one side or the other. So, one of the things I love about Zen is this. Zen says, you know what? We're already enlightened. We just don't know it. So the path is designed to wake us up to the fact that we are already there. So the Eightfold Path is our raft, not our destination. And with every raft, at some point we have to leave it behind because we've reached the other shore. May you all have success 
and stay dry today. Thank you.